You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Hey everybody, this is Chuck Marone with Strong Towns. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. This has been a crazy fall. As usual, when I get into travel season, it's kind of tough to keep up, but I'm I'm done now. I'm actually doing very little travel till somewhere in, in January. So I've got an extended stretch of time and I got a lot of podcast guests scheduled and a bunch of other things. Next week, I'll let you know, is our member drive week. Get ahead of that and go today to strongtowns.org, click on the membership button, sign up and become a member. Next week, we got a, a bunch of fun stuff planned and I hope if you are a member, you stick with it. You're going to get a lot out of it. If you're not a member, I hope it prompts you to become one. Membership is our largest source of revenue. The stuff we do here as uh, Strong Towns, as a movement, as an organization, the base of that is member support. So yeah, go sign up, become a member. That would be amazing. I want to take a little bit of time, and I, I think this should be a short podcast. <laughs> I never know when I start out. I think like, this will be really short. And then, nope. Some weird conversation came out of the podcast I did a few weeks ago about Jackson, Mississippi, and their water system. I realized, you know, I come across this every now and then. I, I get these realizations that there's things in my brain that I know as a civil engineer that other people don't, that I forget that other people don't. You get in this little bubble and you're like, well, everybody knows this. And I started to realize and recognize that a lot of people don't. In fact, most people might not. And so I want to talk a little bit today about water systems and why we have them. And in doing so, kind of shine a little bit of light, not only on what is going on in Jackson and what... I think we're going to start to see in more and more places around the country as these systems age out and, and fall apart. But how maybe we think about what we do next and, and what the next steps are. So I think most of us, if we said, why has the city installed water pipes in front of your house? You would say, so that I have drinking water, right? So that you know, we have fresh water to drink, we have water that is safe, sanitary, won't kill us. Those of us that have traveled to other parts of the world, maybe have experienced water that isn't quite as safe, understand the enormous privilege we have here in the United States of, of generally having safe water everywhere we go. You can pretty much turn on a tap in any city in North America, with a few exceptions, and you're going to get healthy water. And I say North America, I, the US for sure. Canada, for sure. Mexico, not, not as confident about that. But, you know, for the most part, if you're outside of Jackson, if you're outside, and, and even in Jackson, they will tell you when the water is not safe to drink, right? For the most part, we have safe drinking water. I think a lot of people assume that the pipe in front of their house, the pipe in front of their business, the primary reason for it being there is to provide that safe drinking water. That is not true. Back in the late 1800s, I want to say, and so I will, <laughs> back, back in the late, th there were a series of fires. I remember like the big fire in Chicago, I want to say was like 1894 or something like that. 
it might have been the early 1900s, somewhere in that era, there were a series of these big consequential fires. London had a big fire. Cities around the world experienced this. During industrialization, but also before industrialization, as cities grew, one of the biggest fears that you had living in a city was a big conflagration, a, a huge fire. There's all these stories I've read about World War II and the fire bombing that was done, particularly at places like Tokyo, where homes were, in some cases, made out of nothing more than, than what would seem like paper to us. You know, you'd have a floor and a, and a roof, but the, the walls and stuff would be highly flammable, almost like kindling kind of stuff. And the fire bombing there just, just took over. Well, you didn't have to firebomb places to have a huge fire. You had people packed in so tightly that... Once something started to go, and once something started to burn, it would just very quickly burn out of control. And in many cities, big and small, we have records of these historic fires that happened that wiped out huge portions of the city, caused massive destruction of wealth and property, and in many cases, killed a lot of people. The way you would fight a fire before a major water system was with a thing like a bucket brigade. And you could think of a small town, you know, a small town like mine here, Brainerd, Minnesota on the frontier. We did not have a water system when the city was built. It was just a few little shacks kind of thrown up next to each other. If one of them had caught on fire, it would have caught them all on fire eventually. The only thing that would prevent that from happening is in a sense, a bucket brigade people who were assigned to do this, but then also people who would just show up in an emergency and pass buckets down uh, from wherever you could get water. In our case, it would probably be the Mississippi River or something like that. You would get it into the city and you would throw buckets of water on the fire and try to put it out. That may work if the fire is small or isolated, but if the fire started to really get out of control and encompass many buildings, you were gonna be in trouble. And one of the greatest fears in big cities in particular was that you would have a fire and a fire would burn out of control. At some point, we started to develop waterworks. And I've been to Rome. I've seen the aqueducts. They're absolutely amazing. The aqueducts were generally designed not to fight fires, right? They were designed to bring safe, sanitary drinking water to people. You can still today drink water out of the aqueducts around Rome. You can walk around and there's water pouring out of different fountains and different faucets. You can fill up your water bottle. It actually tastes great. It's great tasting water. It's really healthy for you. But these systems were never designed to provide the level of flow, the level of pressure, the level of overall water flow that you would need to fight a fire. I'm not saying it would provide no help and no assistance at all. But but really, if you had a big fire, even in Rome, you were not running to the, the fountain and sticking a you know bucket underneath there and waiting 45 seconds for it to fill up and then running and putting out the fire. You, you were in bigger trouble than that. And so waterworks were essentially designed initially to deal with these places where you had a high a density of buildings. You had buildings very close together, sharing shared walls, where if one went up, another one would go up. And the, kind of like the original waterworks systems were just big tanks, right? They go up on top of a building and just put a big tank up on top of the building. 
And the idea was, you know, we're going to fill this tank up with water. And if a fire happens, bam, we're going to like unloose the spigot and we're going to put that fire out as quick as we can. Because what we want to do is keep that fire from spreading to place to place to place. This was like a, a step up from the bucket brigades, right? A tad bit more effective. You start to add on top of this, the idea of having firefighting forces, people that would show up, people whose sole job was to fight fires. You want to have someone when you call can come out, knows how to turn this stuff on, knows how to operate it. It is not going to waste the water in the tower on something that is not going to help, but actually has some training and understanding of where that water is going to go and, and how it needs to be emptied out. Someone who maybe has a ladder, maybe has an ax, like, you know, stuff that we're not going to have like hanging around the office and can help in this kind of situation. And this started to, again, as our affluence grew, we kind of go to these next stages where all of a sudden you can have a bit of fire protection because of this overwhelming threat. Eventually, we got to the point where we, what we would think of today as like modern underground water systems, big pipes in the ground with fire hydrants, with different relief valves. If you go to a major city, you won't see hydrants, but you'll actually see water. They might call them hydrants there. I'm not really sure, but you know, you'll see on the side of buildings, places where the, the fire department can come and hook their hose to. Those are all tied into a, a big system with high volumes under pressure. These are advanced firefighting systems. I want to, for the sake of this discussion, point out two things about them. One, they were originally designed and situated for places where you had a high likelihood that if you had one building become a conflagration that was out of control, where pouring water out was not going to help, it was going to take out multiple buildings next to it, adjacent to it. And you wanted to prevent that. You wanted to suppress that fire as quickly as you could. And so beyond a bucket brigade, beyond having a, a tank on your roof that you could drain down, all of a sudden now we had this system in front of the place that had adjacent to it somewhere, its own storage reservoir, its own big tower of water somewhere that was stored with a certain amount of elevation to it where the pressure and the volume that could come to bear in this specific place would be enough to knock that fire down. The second thing I want to point out is this is way more water than we need for residential purposes, right? You do not need 500 gallons a minute at 90 PSI for, you know, 30 minutes in order to accomplish uh, what you need to drink. It's massive, massive overkill for what we need to actually be able to consume water. But we're very affluent people. And so all of a sudden, the, in a sense, standard of providing service in a community became, we're going to fight fires by having these water systems that we're going to build. And oh, by the way, as long as we have the water system in the ground, we're also going to tap into it and allow people to drink from it. So when we're fighting fires, we're fighting fires with, in a sense, purified water, water that is drinking quality, which is much greater than what you're going to find most any place else in the world or, or places where they have a, a system that evolved earlier than ours did right? In those places, you will have systems for fighting fires that will be water treated to a lower standard or water that does not have that, that like potable ability to it. 
And then you'll have drinking water. You'll have water that is actually designed for you to drink and ingest. Humans need a couple gallons of water a day to survive. The standard is everybody needs half a gallon of water, of potable water a day to live. You start adding in other things and, and you get up to a couple gallons a day. Well, if you look at a pipe, if you live on a 50-foot lot and you've got an eight-inch water pipe out in front of your house, that's 130 gallons just sitting in the pipe waiting for a fire. 130 gallons sitting in a pipe is you know enough water for 260 people. Nobody's got 260 people on a 50-foot lot. So what happens is that we waste an enormous amount of time, money, energy, resources treating water that we don't actually utilize in any way. I mean, sure, we wash clothes with it. We wash floors with it. We wash our cars with it. We do all this like insane things that other parts of the, the world will look at and go, what, what are you doing? And we do that with highly treated potable water. That That's our standard. Essentially, we pour caviar all over the ground because we're, we're rich enough to do it. This became the standard because we were fighting fires and we needed the firefighting capacity. And as long as we're going to pay for the firefighting capacity, you, you have the drinking water capacity there too. And as long as you got the drinking water capacity there and the firefighting capacity there, you might as well wash your car, you might as well clean off the side of your house, you might as well pressure wash the sidewalk, all of this with nice, potable, highly treated water. Now, enter suburbanization, the suburban experiment. And we are going to take Americans who lived in tight neighborhoods within cities. And, and let's, let's be real, we had places that were very tight, very compact, places that needed that firefighting type of investment because things would go really bad very quickly if buildings went up. But we had a lot of people who, even in the early 1900s, were living on the edges of cities in places that were a lot less dense and there was a lot less at stake. And I'm not talking about human lives, but I'm just talking about per the investment that we would make, there was a lot less at stake. There were a lot better things to spend our money on. If that little shack on the edge of town goes up in flames, no fire system is going to save the people inside of that building. But it's also going to spread to what? Some other little shacks. And you can, you know, get your bucket brigade together and quell that. And that wasn't deemed to be worthy of massive, massive public investment. But all of a sudden, we became very rich. And so we started to, to do these things. We started to expand these systems. And as our cities expanded horizontally outward, the standard that we had built in the central cities to fight fires became, in a sense, the standard that we use to fight fires everywhere. It became the standard for what a water system should look like. And so we have cities that are completely suburban. <laughs> the neighboring city to me, Baxter, Minnesota, you've got one acre lots that are served with city water. Why? Because that's the way we do it. That is now the standard that we use to provide. That, that's what we consider to be the minimum standard acceptable for such places. What happens if a suburban home catches on fire? Now, worst case scenario, people die, right? Worst case scenario, people suffocate with smoke. They can't get out. They are caught in the flames. These are horrible tragedies. And because of that, we do certain things, right? We have smoke alarms. We have 
fast response from firefighters. We will have flame resistant types of construction. We do things within these homes and the, the newer homes are even more so designed to keep people safe from fire. But we also have this massive suppression system outside in the street, 130 gallons on a 50 foot lot, right? Sitting there waiting with huge tanks and elevated storage to keep this all under pressure so we can pump huge volumes of water out to suppress the fire on this house. And again, I'm gonna ask the question, why? The thing that will have the biggest impact, and, and obviously if your house goes up in flames, you want the firefighters there as quickly as possible, right? Like we want to get people there and help get people to safety. And then we want to try to save the home as much stress and duress and damage as we can. But let's say that for some reason that becomes impossible, that becomes really difficult to do. What is the downside of having a suburban house go up in flames? Again, I'm not trying to be heartless here. Obviously, this is horribly traumatic, and I do not wish this on anyone. But as a matter of public policy, what are we trying to accomplish here? We're trying to stop the fire from spreading. That's what that big, huge firefighting investment we've made in front of that suburban home is about. It's about not suppressing the fire on the house. I mean, that is actually relatively easy to do. We, we send out you know, trucks with big tanks attached to them. They've got foam and stuff that they go in and, and lay down. This is, for these areas, the water system is almost redundant. It's almost like massive overkill. Why do we have it there? We have it there under the old theory that was applicable in central cities, that if we don't suppress the fire in this suburban home, it's going to spread to other houses around it. Now, I'm sure there are instances where this happens. I'm sure there are instances where there's high wind, vegetation, some other thing. But if you just take your standard suburban lot, if I go back out to Baxter and look at these one acre lots or even half acre lots or what have you, the houses are spread so far apart that one going up in flames is not going to automatically catch the next one up and itself catch the next and the next and form this kind of chain of conflagration that, that goes out of control that we can't deal with. It's not going to happen. And so again, why do we have this big water system? Why do we have it in place? And I'm going to answer that question the way I've already answered it. We have it in place because this is what we do. Not because we need it for drinking water, not because we need it for fire suppression, but because this is what we do. When I look at Jackson, Mississippi, I see a city that at one point needed a water system for fire suppression. Let's take drinking water and set it aside. They desperately needed a fire system for water suppression. Their core of their city and the neighborhoods adjacent to that were of such like thickness and proximity that if one building went up, it was likely to get another building another and go out of control. But when we look at Jackson today, that is less the case, right? Things now are not necessarily more spread out, but they're more denuded, right? We've gone in and taken out many of the buildings. We've created a lot of space between buildings that we now use for parking and for other things. The idea that one building going up in flames is gonna take everything else out with it, with our modern firefighting equipment and, and everything else we have is, is just not the reality. It's just not real. That's the core of Jackson. Let's go out to the edge of Jackson, Mississippi, 
And look at that. And we recognize very quickly that 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 was never real. That was never a reality we faced. That was never something that should have been an obsession for us or something that we were really concerned with. All of the money that we've put in the ground, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars, building storage facilities and tanks and huge, massive pipes and redundant connections so we can get adequate flow. All of that is designed around the notion that we need to suppress fires to keep the great Chicago fire from occurring in the suburbs of Jackson, Mississippi. And that is just a wrong premise. It's just the wrong premise. Now, there's going to be firefighters listening to this today or people who are adjacent and no firefighters, or people who have been through bad fires. And, and please understand, in many ways, firefighters are, are heroes. I get it. I've got a brother who's a firefighter. They run into burning buildings. I mean, who among us does that? It's heroic. I'm not denying that in any way. I'm also not suggesting that uh, the people who suffer from fires aren't suffering from deep loss. I mean, the idea of having all of your possessions, I mean, I just think of like all my photos, all the things that, you know, the books, the little notes, all the things that mean so much, just gone permanently. I mean, I feel like we can replace the furniture, we can replace the carpet, we can replace the the stuff, but those things, just losing them, I mean, it would be a heartbreak, it would be a tragedy. But there's also a tragedy when we look at a place like Jackson, Mississippi. And we say, you, you have this massive system. You have the system that is over-designed, over-built, over-extended, just for providing drinking water to the people of Jackson and around. And you're not able to do that adequately. You're not able to do that in a way that the people of Jackson are not suffering from deeply. And then you layer on top of that this knowledge and this recognition that the system is actually designed many, many, many gradations along that, you know, many gradations beyond what is needed for drinking water, just so we can fight fires. And, and I hope it opens up in your mind the idea that we could do something dramatically different. If you go to rural areas, and I'm, I'm going to the other extreme of Manhattan now, right? I'm going to like a very rural area. If you go to rural areas, there are many places in this country, and like northwestern Minnesota is one of them, where it's really hard to get good drinking water out of the ground. In some places, the drinking water has arsenic in it, and I'm serious, arsenic, like kill you kind of arsenic. Um, in some places, it's just so overwhelmed with lead or manganese in concentrations that just make it undrinkable and really difficult to treat even with like a home treatment system. I have seen in these places where they will develop what is called a rural water system. The rural water system is not meant to fight fires. It's not meant to have potable water to you know, steam out your carpets or your, you know, power wash your sidewalks or the side of your car or what have you. It's not even water that's designed for your wash machine or your uh, dishwasher or what have you. It's just water to drink, right? It's just water that you can ingest that will be safe to drink and, and good to drink. And what happens is that even with farms, people spread way, way apart. Uh, these places are able to deliver clean drinking water at a very affordable price through rural water systems. 
They essentially have one kind of small, modest treatment facility that brings water up from the ground, puts it in a collective treatment thing. You can imagine a hundred different farms or, or 50 different farms sharing the cost of providing this treatment. And then in very small pipes that don't require a big trench to dig, don't require you to uh, do a whole massive invasive amount of earthwork in order to get in place, just you basically plow them in the ground, are able to run water very cheaply to all of these places. It's not high pressure. It's not high volume. It's not going to sustain a high PSI for a long period of time. It's just water to drink. This is an invaluable service that, that rural people know how to do. Now, again, if your barn goes up in flames, it's a tragedy. It's a, it's a horrible thing to have happen. But your barn going up in flames is not going to catch your neighbor's barn on fire. They're hundreds of feet away. They're maybe a mile away. Like it's not going to happen. There's no fear of that. If your house goes up in flames, it's a horrible tragedy. And we want to get people out and we want to do what we can to stop that fire as quickly as possible. But from a large public perspective, there's no danger that your rural farmhouse going up in flames is going to create some conflagration that is going to envelop, you know, the five people that live next to you. It's just not going to happen. And so there's no reason to have a big, massive water system out in these places to fight fires. I'm sharing this because I want you to understand what the water systems that we're dealing with are about. Because I, I think we've forgotten that, or we, we, we conveniently bury it. The engineers don't talk about this, right? And this is another one of those examples where I feel like within the system, there's a certain built-in resistance to reform because reform would actually mean doing less. It would actually mean spending less. It would actually mean a big, broad reconsideration of the methods that we use and the way we approach things. The people who bring forth ideas like this are often branded as wacky and kooks, right? Like you get the the people who have the uh, recyclable toilets and stuff, the, the self-composting toilets. And I have to admit, I do not have one. And I do think that sometimes when people push those, they come across as a little kooky. We're going to have, you know, a toilet that recycles itself in your house and you're going to have to, you know, whatever, whatever. I understand. I get how this seems a little outside of the mainstream to be discussing this. But I, I want to point out the mainstream view is not working. Jackson, Mississippi is real. The water system failure is real. And it's not an anomaly. It is a thing that is spreading and is going to spread more and more as these systems age out. And as we confront the reality that we do not have the money or the resources to fix these massive firefighting systems so that people can have fresh drinking water. There's a resistance among the professions because this feels like we are retreating. We are retreating from a very high standard, a high quality to something lesser. And I just want to put in people's minds that what we did was actually kind of crazy. What we did was actually kind of insane. We took systems that were very logically created, and, and it wasn't the first iteration, it was about the third or fourth iteration, were logically created to fight fires in high-density cities where we had experienced massive destructive fires. And we took that same system 
and we just spread it out over this massive area to provide the same level of protection to places that didn't actually need it. I don't have a clean answer here. And I don't think that there is a clean answer. I, I, like, I, I'm not going to say that, well, Jackson just needs a rural water system. <laughs> I'm not suggesting that at all. But I think as we look at cities like Jackson, or we look at places like Flint, Michigan, where I, I wrote the same thing about five or six years ago, introducing this idea and was roundly attacked by people who said, you know, I was being, you know, racist and, and not... Uh, fully empathetic to people uh, who didn't have the same advantages I did, as in, you know, we should go back and, and put in the same ridiculous water system that they've got now at a cost that was literally more than their entire house was worth. This is not benefiting anybody to think like this. This is not benefiting anybody to just waste our resources in this way. And again, I want you to think about the idea that we highly treat our water that we then use to wash our cars and pressure watch our sidewalks and, and do things that do not need that level of treatment. It would be akin to taking bottled water, really, because a lot of the bottled water you drink is just city water that someone has put into bottles and shipped out. I mean, really, that's what it is for the most part. It would be akin to taking bottled water and, you know, washing your car with it. Like, it's, it's insane. Why are we doing that? We're doing that because at one point we were really rich. At one point we were really affluent and we said we can do anything we want. We don't have to think about the cost. We don't have to think about the long-term liability. We don't have to think about how people are going to maintain this stuff. We don't have to think about any of the long-term consequences because you know what? We're filthy rich. And guess what? The people of the future are going to be even richer and they're not going to have to think about it either. So if we can, you know, get massive pipes all over our city and give everyone great firefighting protection, even though they live on a one acre lot isolated from everybody else, heck yeah, that's what we're going to do because that's what a great standard is. And let me point out, let me point out, and this is going to sound deeply cynical, but I think it gets at something important. Let me point out that if we can build a system that is 10 times or 20 times or 50 times more expensive then we need, that is 10 times, 20 times, 50 times more consulting fees, staff, engineering work, et cetera, that we can sustain on that project. There's a deep discussion we need to have here, and it's going to be block by block, and it's going to be nuanced. But I, I feel like it's going to involve, over the next generation, of deciding, almost in a roads and streets kind of way that we've talked about for transportation, deciding what areas are urban and what areas are not. And in urban areas, having a level of public investment and an approach to maturing and thickening up and making more productive those places that ties in huge investments in firefighting apparatus with development patterns that actually need it huge investments in stormwater that actually then, instead of saying you got to keep half of your lot green so we can have green plantings and, and green infrastructure, actually using 100% of that lot because you put a massive investment in stormwater. And then looking at the non-urban areas, and if we want to call them rural or we want to call them suburban or whatever you want to call them, looking at them and saying, this same standard of public investment does not apply to you. The same level of public investment 
is just not financially viable where you are. And so you do have to keep 50%. In fact, you have to keep 80% of your yard green and retain your water on site and let it soak in because we're not going to put millions of dollars of stormwater management into your place. You are going to have to have a rural water system collected with your neighbors uh, and, and, and use that for your drinking water because we cannot afford to put massive pipes in front of your spread out home so that fires don't move from one building to the other. It's, it's, it's a complete overkill. It's a complete waste of resources. We don't have the money to put a 40-foot wide road in front of your house. Uh, whoever thought that was the standard anyway, but we're, we're just not going to do that because the odds of two school buses meeting at speed while a fire truck is trying to get through is, yes, theoretically possible, but so low as to be nonsensical. Like, we're just not going to do that. These are all decisions that you have to make when you recognize you're not as rich and wealthy as you think you are. And they are decisions that we've not had to make up to this point. They're decisions that we should have made. We should have made decades ago, but we have been able to spare ourselves making those difficult decisions. Now, step back and recognize what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about anybody going without water. In fact, today in Jackson, Mississippi, there are people going without water. And so if your standard is, well, Chuck, you can't do this. It's, it's barbaric. I'm like, yeah, today the system is barbaric. People are going without water. People are suffering. I'm actually talking about how to solve that. I'm also not talking about people's homes burning down. Homes burn down today. Firefighters show up. They do the best they can. Having a system in place that fights fires and keeps them from spreading in urban areas, but in suburban areas, is not focused on that. It's focused on other things. To me, will not change at all our ability to respond and help people with conflagrations. In fact, I think it would actually help particularly if we can get the, 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 the Rosen Streets issues figured out. And so what I am trying to put forward here is not some holistic solution, but I'm trying to broaden out the overall toolbox and the overall lens in which we think about these things. Because when we just spend stupid money, we make stupid decisions. When we don't think these things through and have any type of nuance to them, we wind up with this one-size-fits-all approach that is the standard. And we wind up overextending ourselves, overbuilding ourselves, and everybody ends up suffering from that. I was amazed and marveled at the Roman aqueducts. They, they are amazing. And the idea that they've been bringing water down from the mountains for thousands of years is so humbling and impressive, right? These are systems that benefit from a certain degree of simplicity, right? Water flows by gravity downhill. You have snowpack that builds up and pours into uh, reservoirs and that pours out into pipes and those pipes then flow downhill and we can regulate that flow throughout the year and, and have it run into fountains and have it uh, make the city beautiful and give people clean drinking water and have them live really high quality lives. Rome also has a firefighting system and it's not fed with spring water from the glaciers melting up in the up in the Alps, right? Like that's not where the water's coming from. That is not the water that they have. And guess what? If you look at the rate of death here in the U.S. from fire, it is many multiples what it is 
in Rome. It's many multiples of what it is in Italy. It's many multiples of, of any European country where there is ridiculous amounts of density. We have been really rich for a really long time. And it has caused us to do some very dumb, wasteful things. In the words of British physicist Ernest Rutherford, we've run out of money. It's time to start thinking. What I'm asking us to do is to start thinking. Thanks everybody for hanging out with me a little bit today. Next week, again, Member Drive. If you value what we do here, if you want to be part of this growing movement, if you want other people to be part of this conversation, I'm going to come back next week and kind of share a little bit about our strategy and what we do and and kind of the theory of change that we have here at Strong Towns and how you're a huge part of it. Preempt me a little bit. Go to strongtowns.org. Click on become a member, sign up, make a donation to Strong Towns. It's a 501c3. We are tax deductible donation. You're going to feel really good about yourself when I share with you next week what our theory of change is because you're going to say, hey, I'm already part of it. I'm part of this. For those of you out there listening, I just am really grateful that you're there. Thank you. Take care. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made the city? I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.